We're going to be looking at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And the Lord put this message on my heart this week. Um, I know a lot of us are going to be encountering family, whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving. And uh, I just felt like the Lord wanted to share this message of love. And how many of you know love's a tricky thing? Because love knows when to hold on, but it also knows when to let go. Love knows when to pull you close, but it also knows when to give you your space. And so love is this this dynamic that God defines himself as. The Bible tells us that God is love. So there's something about this love that we need to understand. And I think what happens a lot of time is we get the wrong idea of what love is. And or we get so condemned by the fact that we aren't loving the way we probably should that we think it's an unattainable goal that we shouldn't even shoot for. And we throw in, throw out the baby with the bathwater altogether. And so I want to try to help you with this. And what I've found is, is that I can't love without God. So if God has asked me to do something that I can't do in and of myself, he would be a tyrant if he asked me to fulfill it in and of myself. But God asked me to do this thing that is only can happen if I'm in relationship with him and if he's empowering me to do it. Since God is love, he's the founder of love, he's the author of love, he's the, he's the embodiment of love that without him I can't, I can't love. So God would have us change our focus from looking within ourselves and our own ability to love because we all know that we've experienced pains and hurts and things that others have done to us and it sometimes seems like, God, will I ever be able to love? But that isn't what God asks you to do. He doesn't ask you to pull from your own reservoir some ability to love supernaturally. He tells you that I just need you to be willing to love and open to love, and I'll give you the supernatural ability to love. John 15, verses 1 through 17. And I want you to get the aroma, just the kind of flavor, no particular verse, but just the flavor of what God would be saying. John 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire And they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, 
You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. His philo. Verse 14, and you are my friends, for you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. Wow. (laughs) Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. (laughs) Amazing. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Wow. We have their branches trying to exist without a vine who are withered and dead. And then we have branches that are in this vine that are producing much fruit and then being pruned where they can produce even more fruit. We have something else happening about fruit remaining. In other words, that this love that of giving one's life for someone else would be the testing ground to which God would test all works of mankind. So anything that you do out of some other motive other than love is something that won't abide. It won't remain. So there's something about this love that produces fruit and and, and gets you to get pruned every once in a while. And as you're pruned, you're not pruned just to be pruned. You're pruned so that you'd bear more fruit and there's something about this love it makes your fruit remain there's something enduring here about love but it seems to be something so simple yet so unattainable there's a story about the great apostle john he was up in age and this is in christian history he was up in age and he had left the Isle of, of Patmos. He had already written Revelation. He was in his last years of his life. Some believe in his 90s. Some believe in his hundreds. But there's a story that he was there in Ephesus and was at that church attending. And Ephesus was the biggest church of that time. That's why when you have the, the book of Ephesus in your, your Bible, the reason why that exists, that was a general letter going out to everybody. But the reason why that letter endured, a general letter to Ephesus, because there was more copies of that letter in Ephesus than any other copy that made it to any other church because the copies were just so profuse because profuse the church was so big. And so there's a story that, that Elder John the Apostle was in the audience of the church of Ephesus, and he was asked to come up and to address the people of God. 
And as he's bringing himself to the fore, there was, had to be people on each side because he was way up in age and he'd experienced extreme persecution and lived a hard life of faithfulness to the gospel, to an empire that was not uh, excited or, or behind this uh, first century Christianity. And so he comes up to the front and they help him up onto the stage. And so here comes uh, Elder John, aged John, and he comes up to the front Now think about this. This is the Apostle John. Think of the things that he saw. He saw Moses and Elijah meet Jesus on a mountain. That's what we're shouting about, right? He had laid on to the breast of Jesus himself. He had seen Jesus multiply a a little boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people. He had seen the miraculous of God time and time again. But do you know what he said when he stood up in front of that congregation in Ephesus? Christian history tells us that he said, My little children love one another. That he could have said anything but yet, Loving one another would be the most important thing. And beyond the miraculous, you know what's the hardest to do? It's harder to love your neighbor than it is to do a miracle. It's harder to get that kind of worked out. There's something about the idea of love that is so simple, but at the same time, it's so impossible. And talking to you about love, I am not an expert. You can ask my wife. I am a student in this thing, okay? So we're all fellow strugglers learning how to love. I feel like the Apostle Paul where he says, I'm leaving the past behind and I'm kind of pressing forward to this high calling and this mark and the hopes that I can sometime or maybe achieve it. But it's hard to love people. I remember before I got saved, I didn't love anybody. I thought I did. But it was all selfishness. It was all from a self-centered place. It was all out of, it was all out of self. And, and so if something began to, to feed my self-ego, my psyche, my ego, then I would call that, yes, I love them. And all I was doing was reciprocating a feeling that they were giving me. But then when I got saved, guess what happened? I loved everybody. Do you remember when you got saved, right? You, you just go, you just, all those things go away and just this innocence and this naivety begins to enter in and you just try to love everybody. But it's not too long in church when you get hurt a few times, you go from loving everybody to loving a choice few that like you. See, it's a battle to love the way Christ has called me to love. And Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this to lay down his life for his friends. It implies a complete giving of oneself, whether there's any reciprocation or not. And if you're like me, when you hear this message, you go down to the altar at the end and you go, woohoo, I'm going to love everybody. And your love meter is up to 100% when you leave. And you vow that when you leave those doors, you're going to love everyone in the community, regardless of what they can do for you. And you leave out, and as soon as you pull out here on Central, somebody cuts you off. Your love's down to 90. You go to the buffet, 
And you just got out of church and you did your thing. You did your duty. You went to church. And some old boy in coveralls that's been deer hunting all morning comes in and gets the last chicken leg from the buffet. And you look. Your love's at 80%. (laughs) Then you got to go face your coworkers Monday. You're at 30%. (laughs) It's Tuesday. You miss midweek Bible study. You're at 10%. And you're ready to kill somebody. And you got four days till Sunday. See, see this love thing is, is it's a tricky thing. And it's kind of this kind of rigmarole or this uh, kind of humorous illustration. It's kind of how we go through. And then we just come to this place where we say, man, this love thing is just utterly hopeless. But you know, that's the first place God would have us to get. Is to say, God, in and of myself, this is hopeless. And unless I humble myself, God, and ask for your provision each and every day, this love thing is not going to flow out of me. Because as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, the Bible tells us neither can you unless you abide in me. So you can do a lot in the natural. You can go to the moon in the natural. You can do some miraculous things. But you can't love without God. You can't love without you can't love without God. Matthew twenty four twelve. Jesus begins to talk about a dispensation of time of the last days that started as his death on the cross and his resurrection, his ascension that ushered in this eschatological new age of the reign of Christ that would come to the earth. And, and as he's instituted that, he begins to talk in future things in Matthew twenty four twelve. And he says this, and because lawlessness will abound, that's in the aorist and infinitive there, which is, means a past event that has started, but it is continuing into the present that you are in now. It's uh, with a completed action that is moving right into our day and will continue to move past our day. It's not concerned with a number of persons or a number of people. It's infinite. So that means this multiplying or this abounding there is the same way word that's used in the book of Acts when it says, and the church of God multiplied. This is the only time Jesus uses this word in the New Testament to when it's got a negative connotation. So we see the church multiplying, but then we see the lawlessness of something else multiplying. And he says this, that the love of many will grow cold. Because an age will be here that the lawlessness of many will abound, that the love of God will grow cold. The love there in the Greek is the agape love. It's the same word love used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's the same word used in Romans chapter 5, where you've been justified by faith, and the love of God has been poured into your heart, or the, has been shed abroad if you're a King James person. It's, it, it's the love that can only come from God. But he says this love that can only come from God has this ability to grow cold as lawlessness abounds, and as these things 
begin to enter into our societies and into our lives, that it can begin to make the agape love grow cold. The word cold in the Greek is the word suko. And it has this connotation of like getting a spoon of hot soup in this this gentle, deliberate cooling off that would begin to lose its temperature ever so gradually, so gradually that we wouldn't even know it. So gradually that we would be fooled that what we had was love, but what it really was was the spirit of the age freezing us out. This word suko in the Greek is what we transliterate psycho. So the love of many will make people psychos. That, that the spirit of the age that is blowing in on us is either, it's either the wind or the pneuma or the ruach of God blowing in or it's the spirit of the age blowing in on us that is freezing us and making our love shrink and leading us to grow cold. Remember Adam in Genesis when before he became a living soul, God breathed into him. This is a different kind of breathing. This would be a, some kind of breath that was satanic at its origin and that would make us grow cold. And if you'll look into the world, you can see lawlessness is abounding. What used to be right, and you could stand up and say it was right, and everybody would cheer. Now you say it's right, and they're saying, no, you're wrong. It's completely flipped as a culture. And I'm not here to, to, uh, to, to bolster how wicked the age is because I believe the Spirit of God is powerful than any spirit Satan has in this earth. So I'm not here to do that. But what I am here to do is to say, if you're not open to God doing a work in your heart, if you're not open to letting Him teach you to love, if you're not open to the Spirit of God to prick your heart where it needs to be pricked, you could be these ones that, because of lawlessness abounding, that you grow cold and you're not willing to let anybody in to your life. The warning Christ gives here is to the church. It's not to the world. The word love was agape. That's the love only God could give. So God is saying because the love of many will grow cold that the, that the, the, because the lawlessness was abound, the agape of many, the church, will grow cold. That the temptation of such a wicked age will be to grow cold and to shut our hearts up from people. As these perilous times approach our thresholds. This is God's love. And this is a charge to all pastors. Because as a pastor, if I'm not willing to allow the Spirit of God to permeate this place and in my heart. And to help me preach these messages. If I'm not willing to do that... I don't care how biblically sound my messages are. I will only serve as to being a breath that will cool you off and lull you into the spirit of this age. That I can be biblically correct, but yet not have the spirit of God operating in my life. And you be the beneficiary sitting and submitting under it that would not be growing further into the things of God.
So as a minister, I better not stand in this pulpit not being willing to allow God to perfect His love in me. Otherwise, I'm just serving as a refrigerator to cool you off into the last days. See, in John 15, Jesus talks about finding meaning in our life through us sacrificially loving others. And verse 11 talks about a great joy coming because of this. This seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That God, I give myself to people that would possibly trample on me and somehow in that freedom of exchange, a great joy comes upon us. It seems that maybe Jesus had too much wine at the wedding of Cana when he wrote the vine scriptures here. But, but that's exactly what God is, is saying because that's exactly the uh, example that Jesus set forth was that he gave himself to those who would murder him and crucify him and not one point in his life was he absent from joy. So Jesus teaches us that if we will follow him into this hard thing, that it will result in a greater level of joy than we could have ever known. Now, this is easily preached, but it's hard to live. It's hard to live. It's hard to love those who are talking behind your back. It's hard to love those who have stabbed you in the back. But, but Jesus says when we do, there's joy. And when we don't, there'll be an absent, absence of joy. It's kind of like God is revealed in the earth by this thing called love that he has defined. And if all kinds of great works and miracles are going on in the earth, but yet not, love isn't in them, there's something of God that is not communicated to those around us. There's something that's supernatural, but yet lacking when it comes to the witness for God in the earth. And I think that's what we forget sometimes in the church, is we forget that the glory is about God. And we think it's about our church or the success of this or that or did this guy have the fire or did he not or was this blah, 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 blah when Jesus isn't even looking like that. Jesus is saying, where's the love? And if the love is there, then that's what I'm looking for. You'll never find it once in the New Testament where Jesus condemns a church for not having enough people. You'll never find Jesus condemning a church because the offering wasn't big enough. You'll never find Jesus condemning a church because they didn't have a building program or their gymnasium wasn't going up in time. When you see Jesus addressing the church, it's always to deal with a lack of love and some kind of character defect. But we judge the church by how many people's there and how big's the offering and how big's the building program. That's not what God is in. God is looking for a people who will open their hearts and say, God, teach me to love again. God, teach me to love the way you love. Teach me to love where you'll get the glory, God. Teach me to love where I'm not so selfish and self-centered that I can't witness to my friend or my neighbor or I'm too ashamed of looking like Jesus that I won't open my mouth at work. God, rid me of myself where, God, I can show the love of God in every place that I go. That this is what God is after. 
the one thing Christianity has and the world doesn't is love. They can outperform us. They can get a bigger crowd than us. Come on now. They can build a bigger building than we could ever build. But let me tell you something the world can't do. The world can't love the way that Christ loved. Because only those filled with the Spirit of God and are open to the Word of God and have submitted themselves to the things of God, only they will be able to operate in a love that will be supernatural and unique. Jesus said this, that this is how they're going to know you're my disciples, by the way you love each other. Could the world come into this room today and see our interactions with each other and say, they got to be disciples of Christ. Look how they love each other. See that the true Christians would be jealous of a love for one another and not after stuff that would be flashy or big or impress the world. Well, 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But there's something about this love and laying our life down, that it's a supernatural work of God that only God can accomplish it. Now how do we do this? Because if you're like me, you've been in church a while. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of flashing the pan experiences. How, how do we accomplish this? How do we begin to start a willingness and a journey towards this reality? Well, it might not come how you think. In John chapter 11, verse 3 through 6, Jesus is hears about someone whom he loves named Lazarus. In verse 3 it says, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now get this, this is where it gets weird, verse 6. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. So we hear all through their love of the, Jesus, of the love Jesus has for Lazarus and for Martha and for Mary, for all the family and how he loves them, but he hears that Lazarus is sick and he stays two more days in the place that he was. It would seem that love would compel him to go running. Uh, but Jesus stays. And the same word love here is that same agape. This is a God kind of love. Uh, but it's like Lazarus had to die for the glory of God to be revealed. And I think sometimes we badger those whom we love into making some kind of change until we become really an annoyance to people. That we're badgering them that we really don't look like salt and light. We really look like some annoying girlfriend that has self-image issues. 
that we should be the bride of Christ, but we really look like somebody needy who's not secure in their love of God. See, sometimes we badger people when God's wanting us to understand we're not God. And sometimes we have to step back and let something die in somebody's life in order that the glory of God could be revealed. In the story of the prodigal son, which the story should be called the prodigal father because the son really didn't do anything but just come back home. In the story of the prodigal son, he tells his dad, I want the inheritance. So in other words, he's telling his dad, Dad, I want you, you're dead to me. I just want what you have. I don't want your relationship. And the father does something so amazing. Do you know what he does? He gives it to him. What? No, you're supposed to scold him and spank him and make him feel really bad. No, the father says, no. Because unless this thing dies in you that you've got to seek out, you'll never come back home. And you'll always be curious about that thing out there. So if any of you have anyone that is lost in your life, sometimes the Holy Ghost is saying, I let you go to learn whatever lesson that you've got to learn. And I'll step out front my door and I'll look for you every single day. But I'm trusting Holy Ghost that He's going to work this thing out in you. See, there's a time when you love to say something and there's a time to say nothing. Jesus is always in this example and you're going to be maybe at a table with people that have caused you pain. John 13, 23 you have John here where it says that, that the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was leaning in on Jesus. And that sometimes following Christ is just allowing somebody to lean in on you for whatever reason that they might need at that time. And this is where it gets hard. King David said in Psalm 55, 12 through 14, it's not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It is not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Verse 13, instead, it is you, my equal, my companion, and close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. See, all those at the table that were with Jesus scattered when Jesus was arrested. All of them that were sitting there and posing as friends. And all of them really, I think, thought they were friends and thought they were so devoted that they wouldn't do that. Because when Christ brings it up to some of his disciples, they say, no, we'll never do that. But Jesus understands that those at the table whom he loves are those who are not perfect and are capable of really hurting and really leaving when things begin to get tough. But it doesn't affect the way that Jesus loves. How many of you know sometimes to get close, it causes pain? And a lot of times at family get-togethers, there's this hidden element of pain called silence. Where all you hear is the silverware cutting on plates. You're like, I'm ready to get out of here. You know, like, sometimes it's like that. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus never threw it back in their face. Jesus kept appearing to them 
to affirm them that he still loved them. He kept showing up. He kept putting himself there, and he never said, yeah, I remember when you guys really messed me up back there? Yeah, you're making it real hard for me to love you. He never did that. You know what he did? He just kept loving because the Bible tells us that love assumes the best about someone. And so Jesus was loving them in such a way that he knew his love was going to pull something out of them that they didn't even know was there. A matter of fact, they had to fail and had to fail God because so that they wouldn't have faith in themselves so that when he showed up in love, they would know how to submit themselves to him without false uh, evidence of something they could do in their own flesh. Jesus kept appearing specifically to Peter. In John 21, Jesus reveals himself to Peter. He says, I tell you the truth that when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Verse 19, Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Wow. That's a pretty rough uh, statement. So Jesus is saying that you've always went where you wanted to go up to this point, Peter. But when the Spirit of God gets in you, you'll sometimes be led to places that you don't want to go. That is, you won't want to go in your flesh. You won't want to go in your heart and your mind. But the Spirit of God will be willing and begin to lead you into places to where you will be the most effective. And then Jesus says, follow me. And what did Peter do? Say, I ain't going. No, Peter said, I'll go. I'll go. See, he chose to not go with his flesh to where he wanted to go. But he surrendered himself to say, God, I'll go where you need me to go. And that's the place where we need to be. Jesus is saying when you were young, you were stubborn and you went wherever and you did whatever. But when you're old, you're going to be stretching out your hands. He was telling him this because he was going to die the same death of Christ, that he would be crucified, that he would be stretched out. And that a part of him wouldn't even want to do it, but there would be another part of him that would understand the glory of God and would understand the love of God. But see, Jesus could make this statement to Peter and tell him these hard truths because Peter knew that Jesus was fully committed to him. And before you make statements of hard truth to your family, they better know that you're fully committed to them. See, Jesus is on the shore there in John 21, and he's cooking breakfast. And then he's having the conversation with them, and before that, he dies for them. So do you see this picture, this holistic picture, is Jesus is willing to do the menial tasks of cooking breakfast, then he's also willing to die for Peter. And so because Peter knows that he's fully committed to him, he can speak in these kinds of truths. 
And we better not, as a people, speak hard truths to the world when they don't know that we're fully committed to them. We better not speak hard truths to family members whom we've not called in five years. We better be able to allow the Spirit of God to show that I'm fully committed. And being fully committed isn't just doing great exploits. Sometimes it's just cooking breakfast for somebody that needs to eat. And a lot of us seem like disciples sometimes, myself included. We say, Jesus, I'll do this and we'll do that. And we've got these great things on our mind. But sometimes Jesus is just saying, why don't you just make breakfast? Why don't you just do something menial? Oh, God, I'll die for you. Oh, you can't make a midweek service. Oh, God, I'll die for you. You hadn't even started tithing yet. And I'm not here to condemn you. What I'm saying is, start in the menial tasks. And allow the love of God to lead you in those things. And you'll find yourself every step of the way growing toward the great and the grand sacrificial things of God. That this is what God is calling us to do. That we should be willing to do whatever it takes. If we're going to speak hard truths to pull anyone out of trouble. This was Jesus' issue with the lawyers of his day, the scribes, the learned ones of the law. Because they knew the law, but all they did with the law was pile it on people where the burden became so heavy that the people would just collapse under it so that they could feel superior as if they were obeying it. Jesus says, you're, not, you're willing to heap the law and interpret it and put such a heavy burden on people, but yet you won't even take your peaky finger and help to lift some of the burdens. That Jesus has called us not to heap the law on people. But to tell them of the grace of God that enables flesh like us to do the impossible. When we submit to God in His ways. That we shouldn't be people that won't lift a pinky to help. But love to call the world out on all their sin. We ought to be in the trenches, washing feet, lifting up, saying, I'll get in the muck with you if it means helping you get out. So what branch is it that you have that needs to love again? What branch have you disconnected from the vine and said, God, it hurts too painful. I can't love there again. What branch have you already cut off yourself? It wasn't the pruning of God. You have disconnected yourself from the vine. What branch is it that needs to have the life of God flowing through it again where it might love and produce the fruit that God has called us to have? Maybe it's a marriage branch. We've said, I can't love this spouse. And what you really are saying is, Jesus, I'm not going to reflect into the world the faithfulness of your covenant with you and the bride. And I'm not going to be faithful. (laughs) 
What branch are you not willing to give to God? What branch have you said, God, I'll go here, but I won't go any further? Because to the level that we surrender is to the level that the Spirit of God can come in and empower us to do. Because if it's not in surrender, we'll take credit that it was in our own power that we did it. So God, you're not asking us to be better people. You're asking us to be surrendered people. You're asking us to be a willing vessel that will say, Jesus, teach me to love again. Teach me to love again. Would you bow your heads?